We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. For the past several weeks, we've been going through a series in the life of David called Power. We've looked at different and various stories of David's life, and we've seen failures, and we've seen struggles, and we've seen triumphs. And today's message is a really important one because it's the last one in the series that we've been going through all year in the year of the Bible uh, that's going to launch us towards the New Testament and the life of Christ. So as we begin today's message, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about a time in which you maybe entered into an agreement with someone or a relationship with someone, and they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. Maybe it was a time, it was a business uh, venture, and you thought things were looking good and financial means were looking good, and your partner didn't hold up his end of the bargain. Maybe you stood on an altar one day, and you said vows to someone that you loved, only to find out years later they weren't going to hold up their end of the bargain. Or maybe you worked hard as a parent and you've poured your life and your soul into your kids and you, you tried to raise them right, you tried to show them the right way, and at the end of the day, when it was their time to go off on their own, they turned away and they broke a relationship with you. Or maybe that role, that role is reversed and you tried to be a good child and your parent said, no thanks. And they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. Or maybe you feel that way about God, if we're honest. That maybe there was a time in your life when you felt like God didn't deliver when he should have. You trusted him. You read in scripture that you know that he's faithful and yet he doesn't deliver the way you thought he would deliver. I was about 12 or 13 years old. When my dad came to me and my mom sat me down and he said, your mom has cancer. It was breast cancer, early 90s, the technology was different and I didn't really know exactly what they were talking about, but I kind of tried to stay away from that a little bit. And she would battle that on and off for years. I was confused as a young teenager. Well, maybe her second or third bout in cancer Uh, It came back as brain cancer and bone cancer. And I remember my junior year of high school, my dad sitting me down, looked me straight in the eyes, and he said, David, I am convinced 100% that God will heal your mom. I thought that was a really bold statement. I mean, I I had knew my dad was a man of faith. I knew that he, he trusted God, but that's a bold claim. How could he speak for God? But he was convinced. He knew and it gave me hope. And about a year later, my mom lost her battle with cancer. And I was confused. God, how could you not hold up your end of the bargain? You, were, you convinced my own father that he was going to heal my mom. Why me? I remember I was a young believer at the time, and I thought maybe there was even some correlation with the way that I was living, if I wasn't pleasing God, then maybe he was taking it out on me by punishing my mom. God, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. I can remember driving out to a field 
maybe my senior year and sitting on the hood of my car and looking up at the stars and just putting my hands up and going, God, why? Why me? Why? You didn't hold up your end of the bargain. My dad was convinced. And I'm convinced that many of you are sitting here today and you felt that same tension. Maybe from someone you know, someone you love, or maybe you feel like God has abandoned you. What if, what if we could enter into a relationship where we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, 100%, that the other person could hold up there into the bargain? Scripture talks about a way that we can do that. We're going to talk about a thing called covenant. In Scripture, you see this, there's an unbreakable promise that God gives his people time and time again. And for us to understand exactly what a covenant is, I want you to take a look at this video, and we're going to come back and talk about it. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel and obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure. 
somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Aren't those videos great? If you're following with us in the Read Scripture app, you see those all the time, and I know that you're enjoying those. So how do we move from this idea that we know in our head that God is faithful? We believe that, but yet when it comes to our heart, we tend to struggle. We're going to look at the, the, the Davidic covenant today. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, so if you want to turn there and find that, we're going to give you a little bit of a background here. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find David after war, so the, the Israel is, is experiencing peace right now, and what does the king do when there's peace? Many of them got in trouble. You never let a, a man be bored. They end up getting in trouble. Well, David here is actually trying to do something good. He's trying to figure out how can we improve the spiritual condition of Israel. See, David was not only a ruler, but he was also a shepherd for his people. Look at what he wrote in Psalm 78, 70 through 72. He, God, chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. See, David is a, has a shepherd heart. He cares for his people. You're also going to see another character by the name of Nathan. Nathan was a priest. He was a consistent voice in the life of David. He was one that uh, was a mediator between God and David, and David trusted him. He was the one that later confronts David with the story of Bathsheba. He's also one uh, that made sure that Solomon made it to the throne as king. When David had four sons, one of them was named Nathan. He had a close enough relationship with God and David that when when David needed to be reprimanded or rebuked, he could listen because he knew that Nathan had his best interests at heart. When Nathan needed to push him and encourage him, David knew he could trust him. So we pick the story up, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, and here's the verses on the screen. It says this, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest, and I want you to pick up on that word in just a minute, Given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God 
dwells in a tent. See, David understood that God had blessed him in his surroundings. His house was actually better than the tabernacle, the tent in which the Ark of the Covenant resides. He later says this again in Psalm 132, four and five. He says, I will not sleep until my eyes or I will not sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So Nathan hears this. He says, I want to build something great. I want to do something amazing for God. I want to build the temple. And Nathan's first response is, hey, God's always blessed you. Go with God. See where this leads. You never know. Later on that night, God comes back to Nathan and reminds him. Look what he says. He says, at no point have I ever asked a leader to build me a house. He said, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. David's desire was to do something great, fantastic, and yet God had a different plan for him. You may relate with that. You may come to church every week. You may try hard. You may try to work hard. You may try to be a good spouse, a good husband, a good wife, a good parent. You may come to church three out of four Sundays, right? You, you do all of these things, and yet in return, when you try to do something big, God seems to slam the door. And this is probably how David felt a little bit. He wanted to do something grand, and God says, not yet. David had to trust that God would offer him a no for a better yes. David's desire was to build God a house, but in a twist, look what God says to him. God tells David, I've got something better for you. Though you want to build me a house, I'm going to build your house. I'm going to build your dynasty. You've got to trust in your head. You know that God is faithful, but when he tells you no, now your heart hurts. When my mom passed away, it pushed me from just saying that God is faithful. That was easy when she was living and things were going well. It pushed me from understanding that to now when the rubber meets the road and things are difficult. How can I, how can I reconcile that in my heart? That he is faithful, that he can deliver on his promises. So what was the better yes that God offers David? It's called the Davidic covenant. In order to understand what this Davidic covenant is, we're going to look at three elements, important elements of what a covenant is. The first one is this, what is the purpose of the covenant? To understand a covenant, we first must need to understand what it is not. A covenant is not a contract. See, a contract is an agreement between two parties that becomes null and void if one party breaks the commitment made. A covenant is a binding agreement in which each party commits to the well-being of the other and commits not to break the agreement, even if the other person does. Let's look at some differences. A contract tells you, I will be what I should be as long as you are what you should be. But if you're not, I'm out. A covenant tells us, I will be what I should be whether you should be or not. A contract is about legalism and leverage. A covenant is about love and loyalty. A contract has loopholes. A covenant 
is binding. See, a covenant is built on love and law, truth and grace. It's loving through voluntary vows, regardless of circumstances. And we don't see this very often in our society because a lot of times we're out for ourselves. Society tells us that if you just make yourself happy, then things will be good. And so this idea of a covenant of looking out for the betterment of other people tends to be foreign. It's risky, it's terrifying to enter into a covenant because you're saying no matter what, I'm committed to you. Marriage is about as close as we get to understanding what a covenant relationship is all about. This is why this particular church holds to what we call a high view of marriage, a biblical view, because it's when a man and woman state on the the altar till death do us part, we're painting the very picture that Christ says to his church, I will die for you, I will give my life up for you, even if you won't be faithful to me. But sadly, we tend to approach marriage as a contract. It's more difficult to get out of a timeshare lease than it is to get out of a marriage. Why is that? Because we see it as a contract. We, we have a low view of marriage. We're taught that it has loopholes, that my happiness is more important than your happiness, and if you don't meet my needs, I'm out. This is why, church, hear me on this. This is why same-sex marriage is not the enemy of biblical marriage. Let me repeat that. Same-sex marriage is not the enemy of biblical marriage. Divorce is. Divorce is the enemy of biblical marriage. When we as believers can't even hold to our biblical truth of what marriage is, the world around us just looks at us and goes, what's the big deal? If Christians alone, those that call themselves believers and say, I follow Jesus with my life, if we alone held our vows to biblical marriage, then it would make a huge difference in statement in this country and around the world. But we don't. We hold a low view of of marriage and we miss out. A covenant tells us that I'm here to meet your needs and that I'm gonna love you richer or poor or sickness and in health till death. The beauty is is that when my spouse and I, we, we say our vows that no matter what, when I get old and sick and fat and I have chronic morning breath and I lose my temper, she's gonna love me anyway. And when that's reciprocated and when I know that there are faults and I can love her anyway, it paints a beautiful picture of what Christ says is a covenant relationship. Many of you know that about four years ago, our church started a ministry here called Marriage Corps. In four years, we've seen 150 couples go through a 24-week commitment to make their marriage better. Many of my leaders are in this room today. We've seen amazing results. We used to say that we were batting a thousand nearly on relationships. We're a little below that, but we've had amazing results when people commit. Why? Because the course teaches us that I'm flawed, that I have issues, that I have problems, and my spouse will never meet those needs that God can fill in my life. And so we begin to learn and, and, and get tools so that we can offer grace to one another in the, in the midst of a covenant relationship that when I mess up, she know, I know that she's going to love me anyways. And I know that in a room this size, I know that Marriage Corps could do wonders for you and your relationship. So here's a shameless plug, crazygoodmarriages.com. Sign up and go through it in the fall. It will make a difference in your life. 
This is what God does. He makes a covenant with imperfect people. He makes a covenant with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. And we will see in Christ, he's going to make a covenant with us as well. He only enters a covenant relationship with us because he knows that we're never going to be able to hold up our end of the bargain. And yet he does it anyway. And that is the purpose of a covenant, to deliver on a relationship even when we can't. Next, we're going to look at the power of the covenant. To understand the power of the covenant, you don't need to turn there, but there's a story in Genesis chapter 15, and it's the story of Abram. God calls Abram, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. People will be like the the stars in the sky, and he was old. And in this particular story, God sets up the covenant relationship with Abram, and this is a little graphic, but just follow me here. He takes animals, and he he slaughters animals and he cuts them in half and he puts one, one side of the cow here and one side of the cow here. And a covenant ritual, that if I were to enter into a covenant ritual, I would walk in a figure eight between the two sides of an animal. We're painting the very picture that, look, if I break my end of the bargain, I'm like these animals, I'm dead. And God sets up this weird covenant relationship with Abraham where he says, I'm gonna make you a great nation. No matter your unfaithfulness, no matter how you treat me, I'm going to be true. And here's the hook in the story. He sets the the covenant ritual up. You've got the one cow on one side, one, one half of the cow on the other side. And then he takes Abram and he gives him a sleeping pill. He says, you go to sleep right over here on the rock. And God performs the covenant ritual alone. Why is that? Because God knows Abram would never be able to hold up his end of the bargain. God, in this particular ceremony, tells Abram, I will be faithful to you even when you won't be faithful to me. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Genesis chapter 8 with Noah, where he says a covenant with Noah that I will no longer destroy the world, and I'm going to give you a promise that the Messiah one day will come from your bloodline. Interestingly enough, he tells Noah that this Messiah will bring you rest. What's Noah's name mean? Rest. In Genesis chapter 15 and 17, the covenant with Abram, he sets a covenant with Israel and he says, I will make you a great nation and the Messiah will come from your select group of people, the Hebrews. He makes another covenant with Moses and Israel. God promises to fulfill the land covenant, and he says, Israel, you will be a missionary nation among the world. And now he comes to the covenant with David's house. And look what he says in verses 10 through 16. I'm going to read this. Follow along with me. Chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come that will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The covenant that God sets up with David, he says that I will give you your land and peace and rest. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Now he says from your specific bloodline, David, rest will come. The Messiah, the promised one, will come. David confirms this, this very covenant in Psalm 89, 1 through 4, when he says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. Forever with my mouth I will make known your of your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, I will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generation. The Davidic covenant compounds on previous covenants. You have the Abraham covenant, the Mosaic covenant, they all focused on the nation of Israel. Now the Davidic covenant focuses on the royal family. There's a narrowing effect that takes place. There's a funnel in a sense. You see through Adam that the promised one will come from the woman's seed. Through Noah, you will see the promised one will come from Noah's line. Through Abraham and Moses, you will see now that the promised one will come from the nation of Israel. Now through David, you see the promised one will come from a specific family. And if you trace all of these back through the Old Testament, you get to a point where you realize that Jesus, when he comes on a scene, is the only one who can answer all of these claims. So we look now at the person of the covenant. When you look at the New Testament, or better yet, the new covenant, it's the story of Jesus. 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16 says again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a twofold promise. Solomon initially answers this. There's the troublesome word of the iniquity. The idea is that God will punish when Saul would go, would go kind of awry, he would go wrong. But the second part of that promise, Jesus answers that. John 1.14 is a verse that we know all, well, all too well. It says, for the word, Jesus became flesh and he dwelt or he tabernacled. That's what that word means. He dwelt or tabernacled among us. See, David wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build him a temple. And now God says, through your bloodline, I'm going to send the human temple in Jesus. And a holy God cannot permit sin in our life, and so he had to send a substitution through his covenant. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. Chase read this earlier. This is where we're going to land today. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for who? All. Say it again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now this word propitiation means covered up. Say that with me, propitiation. You know, David, that's a, that's a big word. Well, so is mayonnaise. We, we all know what mayonnaise means, right? Propitiation, that God paid the price for our sin. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Look at this, church. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen to me. God makes the terms of the covenant and he answers the term of the covenant. God becomes the one. He's the, the ultimate supreme court. He makes the laws. Then he becomes the judge and he enforces the law. Then he becomes the jury and he sentences the law. And where we are supposed to be executed, he now steps down and takes our place and becomes in the courtroom and says, I will take the punishment of the law. He is the just and the justifier. His inflexible holiness and his unending love collide in the person of Jesus Christ alone. He is perfectly fulfilling the demands of the law. He lived a perfect life on our behalf and he became our substitute. Hebrews 7.21 says, Jesus is the guarantor of the better covenant. See, David may not have fully understood this. He might have thought that this was only answered in Solomon, but the New Testament writers now look back and go, yes, this is who they were talking about. And we have the ability to now look 2,000 years in the past and go, yes, Jesus is the one who answered it all. He tells David that I will bring you rest, ultimate rest. What he's telling us in Jesus, that you are my Sabbath, that you no longer have to work. You no longer have to feel like you're, you have to earn your way to heaven. You feel like you don't have to put more money in the plate to earn a good place with God. You don't have to keep a set of rules. God is telling David, a day will come when rest will be offered to all people. It will come through your bloodline, and it's through Jesus. Church, you no longer have to do it. But David had to accept a no for a better yes. I can tell you in my own life, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God has remained faithful to me when I wasn't to him. So to end that story with my mom, I can tell you that I would not be here today on this platform at Park City's Baptist Church if it were not for the events that took place with my mom. I would not be married to the beautiful woman that I have and have the kids that I have. I would not have served all across the globe and lived in a foreign country and make his name known. I would not have even gone to the college that I went to, much less probably have not even gone to college. If it weren't for the events that took place in my life as a teenager, and I had to learn and trust that God may have a better plan for me, and I've had to trust him along the way, and he has remained faithful.
So what does it mean for you and for me? David had to accept it. He just had to trust and accept. And that's my challenge for you today. That God offers you eternal life. He offers you life with a purpose and a meaning. He offers you life from death. And all you have to do is accept it as a gift. You may struggle to understand how God works in your life. You may struggle with the loss of a loved one or how a spouse may have walked out on you or a business deal has gone south, but I promise you that God will remain faithful to you if you accept it. And he offers you the best gift that he knows, and that's himself. So will you accept it today? Will you accept it today? Many of you need to follow his footsteps. You need to follow his call and say, I need to give my life over to you. Many of you have been dating our church for years. You've been coming and sitting in, in these pews and you've, you've liked Park Cities, but you've never fully committed. You need to be here. You need to be a part of the family. You need to come here every week. Why? To be reminded of the covenant love that Jesus has for you and for me. Maybe you need to be like the three that were baptized earlier to follow in their footsteps and be obedient to them or to be involved in a small group and to be used by God here. Will you answer that call? Will you accept that from Christ? Let's pray. Father, I almost know that it's silly to think that in a room this size that there's not someone here who doesn't need you. So Father, I pray today that someone will come to a saving knowledge and rest in you. That they've been running, they've been running the race and they're failing, and if it weren't for grace, you don't know what to do. So Father, may today be a day of new life change for them. That they can accept the covenantal love that you have for them. In your name we pray. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.